I've spent the last few years working for one of the largest shockwave clinics in North America, and I've learned a thing or two about the power and untapped potential of regenerative medicine. But the march towards a future where sickness is healed from its root cause is challenged by the influence of big pharma and their deep pockets. So now we're forced to answer questions like, how do we get rid of joint pain, take back our performance in the bedroom, and heal diseases from the inside out without band-aid medications or negative side effects? This show will give you the answers. Follow along as I interview the world's top experts and doctors and how they transform their lives and their patients' lives using the newest advances in biotechnology. I'm your host, Austin James Wolf, and you're listening to Modern Biotech Radio. Hey, what's going on, Modern Biotech Pioneers? Today, I'm joined by John Romanello. How's it going, man? It is going so well, man. Thank you so much for having me and for the introduction, and, uh, and I'm excited to chat today. Awesome, awesome. See you guys. Uh, John is an author, angel investor, media personality, and consultant who helps entrepreneurs improve communication skills and increase revenue through writing. So uh, we're excited to uh, interview you today. Now, let me ask you this. What do you specialize in? I know you do a lot of stuff, but, but like, what's, what's your thing? My thing is communication and, <clears throat> and always has been. So at the, at the present moment, I am primarily focusing on teaching entrepreneurs and brands, particularly brands that are driven by a personality, to have better connection with their audience through storytelling. Historically, it's been writing, but now the storytelling has expanded. I work with people who run podcasts and do video, and the, the communication encompasses everything from creating content which is you know really intended to sell or to teach rather copywriting which is intended to sell and then all of the stuff that would fall under the umbrella of branding which is really the stuff that brings people in and gets them connected you know in a in a greater way right now as far as storytelling goes in all those different types of mediums do you have a particular story structure that works throughout all those different mediums or objectives? I do, yeah. Uh, I think all story structures are pretty effective. It's the one that works, works the best for you. But what I primarily teach my people is a truncated version of the hero's journey, right. which is uh, created or codified by jo Joseph Campbell, who is a comparative right. mythologist at Sarah Lawrence University. And so it's, I, I break it down to five steps. And rather than it, it needing to be particularly linear, it's almost like a checklist. And so the way that I would encourage you to think about it is if you took everything that was necessary for connection and for the universal appeal of hero's journey type storytelling, and then applied it to content that was intended to teach or copy that was intended to sell, what you would have are this, this checklist of five essential pieces of story. And as long as you have these and they're done relatively well, you will get emotional resonance, you will get emotional payoff, and you'll ideally have people coming back over and over. Right. How do you teach through story? Stories are how we learn. It's how all of us really, um, <clears throat> and by us, I mean both societies and communities and individuals. It's the stuff that we are more likely to remember, where we don't remember facts overly well, but we remember the broad strokes and concepts. Story is how our brain, the human brain, is wired to 
retain information as well as to break down, synthesize, and process, and then and then retain it. And that is really the the reason that story structure is so universal from culture to culture. And so you have all of these disparate groups independent of one another who have what we would now call myths that follow the same model because that's just, it's the way that our brains break down story. And so teaching that is as simple as, as just saying, tell me, how you met your significant other. And if a person is a halfway decent storyteller and they've heard stories throughout their lives, that story will have three components, a beginning, a middle, and end. The beginning is a frame. It's, I was here at this time. This is what was going on in my life. The middle is what we would call the conflict or the action that, you know, the events necessary. And then the end is a payoff. And, and here we are happily ever after. All stories do that. And learning that is, is not a difficult process. It takes 10 minutes. Mastering it is the, you know, the work of a lifetime, like anything else. Right, right. Now, I'd love to ask you this question in the context of what we're talking about. Can you tell us your story about how you sort of became an expert storyteller? What, what brought you to this point? <clears throat> so there's the story. And then there's the story beneath the story, which is a deeper level. So the story is this. From the time I was very young, I have always been fascinated with and inspired by books, particularly fiction and fantasy. When I was a kid, the first book my father ever read to me was J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, followed by The Lord of the Rings. And so I grew up with this love for big stories about heroes and dragons. And when I was eight years old, I told my mother, I want to write a book. And when she asked me why, I said, because books make me happy and I want to make other people happy too. And throughout my life, books and writing were always a fixed presence. And no matter what else I did, I was writing about it. And so when I was a teenager and I started writing, or I joined a band and I was creating music and I was in the emo scene, I was the lyricist, so I was writing. <clears throat> when I was in school, I was an English major and I was writing and telling stories. And I, was, I, I got into stand-up comedy and improv and creating and crafting these stories. It was always a fixed presence. It was something that I had some level of natural inclination for. And throughout my life, in whatever phase I was in, whether it was as a student, whether it was at, as an artist, or eventually as an entrepreneur, this was the thing upon which I always relied to do the thing I wanted to do. And so when I got into the fitness industry many years back, my entry point was writing. I became a personal trainer because I went through a body transformation and the way that changed my personal story was very profound. But the first thing I did after becoming a trainer, rather than learn really in-depth biomechanics, it was learn how to write fitness articles. Because for me, nothing ever felt real unless I was writing about it and knew how to break it down and share it with others through words and story. And that skill set was really the, the foundation upon which my career was built because there are many, many people who could help you lose fat and there are tons of people who knew more about shoulder biomechanics and subacromial impingement, but being able to take the information and break it down in a way that was both informative and entertaining was a much less common skill set. 
And that led me into content writing, which led me into copywriting, which led me into creating products, and then into learning marketing and branding. And then from there, it was a very short step into business coaching and advising and consulting for other companies, which then led me into making <clears throat> small angel investments, learning how that, those companies worked, and that led us all the way to writing books, helping other people write books, and now storytelling workshops. So that is the, the basic narrative. It was something that was always there, and no matter what else I was doing, I was doing that as part of it. Right. It sounds like you always had this natural interest in it, but what's, if, if you were to boil down, boil down one thing that helped you develop your craft the most and helped you sharpen your tools, basically, what would that one thing be? Feedback. Oh. It's always going to be feedback. <clears throat> um, all writers have editors and I was very fortunate that because I loved reading very, very big literature, Hemingway and Tolkien and, and Lewis, the bar for what was a good book was set very, very high. And walking into that, I knew, I didn't have any ego about it. I, I just, I wanted to learn and get better. And so I always gravitated toward people who would, would give me objective feedback. And I was dedicated to the process of, of learning to be better and, and detaching from the outcome and, and just falling into the process. And very lucky to have had a lot of great editors and a lot of great teachers and mentors over the years. And some of those were professors at my school. Others were these, these dead authors whose work I loved. And I would read their stuff and copy it by hand and try to break it down. Why is this good? Why does this have resonance with me? What are, what is he specifically doing in, in this scene or in this paragraph that feels so special and how can I learn from it? And then eventually not replicate it, but, but reproduce it in a way that is unique to me. And I go back to Neil Gaiman, who is a, a great science fiction and fantasy writer who talks about this. And he says, most of us only find our own voice after sounding like a lot of other people. And so this is a very common process for most writers, but it's really practice feedback practice adjustment correction feedback practice like anything else what was the hardest feedback you've ever had to take the very first short story i ever submitted was to a magazine called scry i was 15 years old so this would be 1997 and at that time in the nascent stages of the internet you did not submit things online. And so to submit a short story to a magazine, you would write it and then print it out and put it in a manila envelope and mail it to the editor with a cover letter and an introduction, etc. Scry Magazine was the type of publication you would read if you wanted to learn how to build a really powerful Magic the Gathering deck. And so for those of you who don't know Magic the Gathering, you were obviously very cool in high school, whereas I was not. It was the predecessor to things like Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh! It was a, a trading card game in which each card had a creature or a spell, and you sat there in the lunchroom and you played it instead of being a cool person and playing sports. I'm joking, being a nerd is cool now. 
so the first article, the first short story I ever wrote was about a band of heroes hunting goblins in a forest. And I mailed it out to, to Scry Magazine and I got it back a couple of weeks later. And again, they, they didn't email you. They would send you a letter back. And I got my very first rejection letter. And the editor was, was biting and it really framed for me the way when I when I went on to lead masterminds, uh, I I had to tone down my editorial voice because I would sometimes tear into people's writing the way this editor did with me. It's it's derivative. You're not saying anything special, etc. And I was I don't have the letter anymore, which I I is a great regret of mine. But the feedback was simply there are some turns of phrase, some, some snippets within this thing that are decent. Everything else is more or less terrible, the structure, the pacing. And that was challenging. As a 15-year-old kid, I was like, oh, I'm going to write this story about goblins. But I don't know that I expected to get in. And I was very, very grateful for the feedback. It was really exciting to have somebody whose job it was to make stories better helping me make mine better. And that experience, the next, uh, you know, I, I rewrote it and I sent it back and then it got published. And so that experience really showed me everyone gets edited. Everyone right. gets edited. And, that, and it was roughly around the time I fell in love with Hemingway in high school. And Hemingway said, the first draft of anything is shit. And I learned that like, editing is one of the, it's, it's the better part of writing. Every, every, good piece of writing is made great by consistent and careful editing. And that was the lesson I learned there. It was a challenging piece of feedback to take as a kid, but every other piece of feedback I've had on my writing since then has more or less bounced off relative to that scathing letter 15-year-old me received from Scry Magazine. Yeah, the more writers that I interview and ask questions about, the more I find that you know, there's always that one piece of feedback or, you know, you know, that one person who was really harsh and it ended up helping them become a better writer. Um, so I was just like asking writers about that. Thanks. What's, yeah. What's the, um, have you ever read any books on writing? I have read almost every book on writing you could think of. Yeah. I, actually, I, I organize them in terms of most helpful. So, um, okay. I'm what's the most helpful? Going, yeah. It depends where you are and it depends what you need. Okay. Uh, but the one I think that is, is probably the most helpful overall in terms of it being all encompassing and a fairly contemporary book is the book on writing by Paula LaRock. There are many, many guides out there. Uh, Zinzer's on writing well is very good. You'll often hear recommendations for Anne Lamott's bird by bird. And all of these are, are effective. It really depends where you're starting from and the type of writing that you're doing. If you are writing novels, that's an entirely different skill set than if you were doing exposition or journalistic work or creating content. And mostly what I do, mostly what I help with is teaching people to create better content. And content is different from anything else. I will describe it as nonfiction writing intended to teach. And content is 
two parts storytelling, two parts, you know, let's, let's call it um, exposition or information, and then one part marketing or salesmanship. And it all exists in a single piece. And it's written from the first person perspective, and it fits into a cohesive narrative, which is to say, with an essay you publish in a different place, you might expect people to only read that essay. With a piece of content, you are expecting people to read that piece as well as the piece before it and the piece that comes after it. And it exists within a narrative. And so each piece is intended in some way to get them to the next piece and get them indoctrinated into wanting to read your content regularly. And for those purposes, there are not a lot of truly great resources to teach you that. It's a, it's a process. Yeah, I can imagine. When you're helping uh, these businesses write and structure their content, do you guys sort of map out everything from beginning to end? Okay, on this day, we're going to publish this story, which is going to lead into this story, then this story, then this story. Sort of how like a really well thought out TV show plans its episodes, or is it more of we're going to take one piece at a time and then go from there? I do both. For people who are looking to create a... A, a content arc or some sort of narrative. It's often for, let's say, a product launch and it's, or, or the launch of a brand, and it's an indoctrination series really helping establish what the brand voice, message, the vision, and the values are for the people who are coming along for that ride. Most of the people hiring me are, they're established in some way. <clears throat> and so the goal with them is to really dive into the quality of what they're doing. Their, their brand voice is established fairly well and their people know who they are and what they stand for, for the most part. What they need to work on is the quality of the writing and the storytelling, which is often structural, and just work through their blind spots. Many people, many, everybody has blind spots. Many people who have been producing content for a really long time have blind spots related to the platform on which they normally create. If there is somebody who is an Instagram influencer, they tend to forget that other platforms exist. And so they are good at writing short content. And typically, they operate with the belief that the people reading that piece of content know them fairly well because right. they're, they're seeing all that stuff. Whereas people who write for medium, uh, they are writing for an audience that doesn't know them well. So they're writing from a more, a place of, of third party objectivity and authority, as opposed to first person experience and helping people navigate those tonal and structural shifts from platform to platform or piece to piece and giving them tool set to do that is really where I come in. Right. Right. That makes sense. Do you have a favorite writer? I have many favorite writers. I, I, I love Hemingway in so many ways. His writing is so different from mine. I'm not a Hemingway emulator right? because his stuff, it's very simple and very sparse, whereas mine is, is definitely uh, a little bit more robust. Right. But there's something about the mystique of Hemingway, you know, this cult of personality that he had. And there's something about the experience of being a writer who also was not, not just the voice of 
or one of the voices of that generation, but existed in this lost generation wherein yeah. a novelist could also be someone who wrote ads for magazines and who also, you know, he was this multi, multi-platform kind of person and occasionally helped consult on screenplays, but also just being Hemingway. He was, you know, like, sort of a host unto himself. And I think that to me is, is interesting because it can't really exist anymore. Right. You, you have people now trying to emulate that in a way where, you know, an author becomes an influencer and now has all this other stuff, but it's, it's never going to be the same. You know, we don't have the same esteem. We're not getting invited to white house dinners. Um, as right. for modern authors, Ryan holiday, who I am very yeah. to consider a friend and Neil Strauss, also a friend. They're two of my favorite writers. Ryan has a very, dry objective way of writing but he can still be very very funny when he wants to and neil i think is is one of the greatest storytellers of our generation and for for non-fiction like content-based writing they're two of my favorite and then diving into fiction there's chuck polanek there's neil gaiman patrick rothfuss so many and i am i'm very fortunate to we're very fortunate to live in an age where content is still being produced and we get to experience it as it's coming out. Right. Yeah. What's your, what's your favorite Ryan holiday book? Uh, probably conspiracy. I, really oh, yeah? enjoy, well, that was a wild ride. You know, the, the books on stoicism are great, but just having, you know, Ryan function as, as more of a journalist and, and tell the story of the downfall of Gawker. Yeah. It was, it was very different. And I really, I really, enjoy that one the most because it's it's more of a story and less of a you know a method right right yeah awesome what about your favorite chuck palinuk book choke probably ha it, it's that, that, it's funny you say that that's that one in fight club are the only ones i read I, I mean, everyone's, I, I think that there's something inside of me that doesn't want to say Fight Club because right, I think that's the expected answer. And there's something, you know, endemically hipster about me where I want to be <laughs> evasive to that. Right. Uh, but he also, Polonek did just release a book on writing called Consider This hmm. Moments After, uh, Moments in My Writing Life After Which Everything Changed. And it's a tremendous volume and a, a really great resource and I would recommend everyone pick it up and that might be my overall favorite Polonic book. Writers writing about writing is really just beautiful for me. Yeah, it is. Uh, as far as Fight Club goes, there's a lot of talk about masculinity. There's, there's a lot of themes regarding to that. What do you personally think it means to be a man? I leave that definition up to the individual. Yeah. I am, I, because I'm in the, like the consciousness and spiritual community and people who talk about energetics, masculine energy has less to do with being a man <clears throat> and feminine energy has less to do with being a woman. Right. And more to do with the way that energy presents itself. Masculine energy is more structural and, uh, achievement based it is, right. is outcome focused whereas feminine is more receptive and intended to be and is softer and we all have both of those inside of us i am also very much <clears throat> in the world of um, gender equality and intersectionality and so like i because so many of my friends are trans or queer and i i, I live in that particular uh, paradigm 
I, I have never experienced my own gender as anything other than male. I've always, you know, like I'm a man, that's how I identify, but I know many people who experience differently. And so that's changed my perspective a lot. And when I work with, let's say, cis men, straight presenting men, I, I, I think that ideas of people trying to conform to masculinity is attempting to enact behaviors or skills for what reason other than they think they're supposed to. Right. I don't think that a man is someone who can change a tire. I think that if you drive a car, that's probably something that you should know. <laughs> um, in general, I favor ideas about capability yeah. rather than uh, masculinity, which is to say, if you happen to identify as a man, uh, there are things that are probably going to be helpful to know. But I, I think that there's no such thing as a, as a useless skill set. So for me, it's all about capability rather than traditional ideas of masculinity. Right. I don't think that there's anything wrong with those. I think that the problem comes in when we try to project those as necessary and they don't have resonance with people. I grew up a very nerdy, bookish sort of kid. I wasn't particularly into sports. And because I grew up in the 80s, that meant that I was not man enough. And you know, my, my sexuality was questioned because I didn't want to you know, go out and play basketball. I wanted to stay in and read. And when, we, when you just break it down to something as simple as that, that a, some, because somebody wants to read and another, instead of playing basketball, their masculinity or their manhood is questioned as a boy and all of the problems that can create, then it's really a, a very short step to think that, or it will by the, by the definition of, of 2020 eyes, what is that comparison? Uh, is, is somebody less of a man because he doesn't want to get in fights or he favors music or, or drama or arts. So whatever it is you're in, for me, it's about ownership and capability, whatever it is you love doing, love it so hard that when other people challenge you about loving it, you, it just doesn't bother you. Like be, be unapologetically who you are, love the shit that you love and just accept that other people were not or they're not going to get that. And you don't have to fit into anyone else's definition of what it is to be a man, including society. Right. If someone has, I guess, dealt with bullying in the past over who they are, have you noticed any particular patterns of behavior someone will do to love themselves more or accept themselves more when the world hasn't? Long before someone gets to the point <clears throat> at which they begin to discover that loving themselves is the secret, it has been my observation, they will attempt to go out and win the love from other people, whether that is praise and validation, whether that is respect or fear. And people need to go through that journey of of going out and trying to get the thing, whether it is sex or money or fame. And only by achieving that, and it, it is my, also, again, my experience, my observation that usually by achieving that and realizing the hollowness of it, then can they turn inside and begin to love themselves. And 
it is a it is a long process, but it usually requires going outward in search of the thing you feel is missing before you can realize you need to turn inward and create it from within yourself. And I have not seen any like overly aggressively presenting um, behaviors or patterns other than people tend to do better when they have a community around them who is accepting. Uh, and, you know, when they start doing the work and reading books on philosophy or, or self-love or, or self-discovery, that and psychedelics. Okay, I got one last question for you. This is my favorite question to ask. If you were given a Super Bowl ad slot for one minute, but you couldn't sell anything, what would your Super Bowl ad or your message be? You got all of America watching you. What would you say? Uh, it would just, it would honestly just be my dog running around for 60 <laughs> seconds. No. <clears throat> um, what I would, what I would say is it would be, it would be impossible for me to have a platform for that side and not make it. And my political message would just be, um, it's insane that anyone believes that uh, Donald Trump is a good businessman. Like just, you know, like you could believe whatever you want as a politician, his mm -hmm. policies, like they, they, uh, they benefit me greatly, but this is a man who went broke running a casino, not once, but three times. Now there's only, I don't know if you know this, there's only actually one way to go broke. There's only one way to go bankrupt running a casino. Would you like to know what it is? I would love to know. The only way you can go bankrupt running a casino is if you go into such unbelievable debt in the build out, like let's say installing golden toilets and gold, like 24 karat gold hand pulls on drawers. The only way that you can do it is to go into such unbelievable debt in the build out that even after you open and you're raking in money as casinos do as a matter of course, you simply cannot be profitable enough to outpace the interest on the debt for the build out. That's so far as I know, the only, or to just have a casino that nobody goes to, right. but like that would be challenging, uh, particularly in Atlantic city. And so when you do this once, you're just like, mm, all right, maybe that was a mistake. Um, I won't do it again, but then to do it two more times is a little bit crazy. So I would possibly just say whatever you think about Trump, like, cause I don't have a problem thinking whatever they want about Trump. I just don't like people thinking he's a good businessman right. because he's not, because it makes good businessmen look stupid. Beyond that, I would, I, I don't know what your listeners like. I don't know how much flack you're going to get for this, uh, but <laughs> what I'm going to say is I, I would have a group of veterans people who have actually fought in wars, uh, who support Colin Kaepernick's right to protest, mm -hmm. stand with him and explain to the people watching that firstly, like kneeling as a form of protest is okay. And yeah. also the, you're not okay with it is because you're, you have like internalized racism. But the fact of the matter is like, he is not protesting the military. And most of my friends who were active military people support his right to do that because that's yeah. why they signed up. They signed up to fight and die for his right to do that. And him doing that is not disrespectful, but very respectful. And in fact, he is not protesting protesting the military he is protesting like unarmed black kids getting shot in the back by the police which is still happening right uh, so if i had you know 
an, a, a 60 second slot at the Super Bowl, uh, I would either come at Donald Trump or, and, and particularly his record on, um, on business or have a, have a Kaepernick ad during which he is sp supported specifically by uh, people in the military. Um, whether that makes me some, you know, like anti-American commie leftist, New York elite douchebag that you guys want to hate. That's cool. I'm okay with it. I think it's cool to be an elite. I think it's cool to be a coastal elite. Like elite just means good. I'm, I'm okay with having come from the greatest city in the world and gone to one of the best schools in the world and like actively gone out of my way to make myself better in every way. I know I don't intentionally look down on anyone, but like, um, I believe that, uh, shooting on our black kids in the back is wrong. So, yeah, I love that, man. Well, you're actually the first guest uh, to go in that direction. Usually other people are like, oh, you know, work out more, stuff like that. You know, nope. read this book. I love that. No, no, a hundred percent. Let's like actually address some of the yeah. shit that's happening on, on a big scale because yeah. if you have a platform. You, you have all of America. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, a great line. You know, everybody, when they quote Spider-Man, they, they quote the original, like with great power comes great responsibility. Yeah. A better way to say that. I think was in, or at least a, a slightly more convoluted way of saying it that I like was in um, Captain America Civil War, first introduction of Spider-Man to the MCU. He says, when you could do the things that I can and you don't, and then the bad things happen, it's your fault. So mm. if you have the opportunity, if you have the platform, if you have the power to support things you believe in and you don't because you're afraid of the pushback, mm then when bad things happen, it's your fault. Like you're complicit. Right. It's very powerful stuff. I love that. It's like you're witnessing a crime and you don't do anything. You don't report it. You had the power to do something about it, but you didn't do it. So right. yeah, I love that, man. I love that. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us today on this private interview. Thank you, man. Really appreciate it. Anything else you need, you guys know where to find me and I appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. Want to see what the top experts have to say behind the scenes? Just go to modernbiotechradio.com and you'll get instant access to every behind-the-scenes interview for free. Now, these interviews are not for the public, so please don't share. But if you'd like to pull back the curtain with me and learn what secrets they reveal, just go to modernbiotechradio.com and get instant access to these interviews for free. Again, that's Modern biotechradio.com if you'd like to learn the best kept secrets that they can't share publicly but allowed me to share in private just go to modernbiotechradio.com and get instant access to all of these interviews completely free i'll see you there